0: Civil War Reconstruction, a monthly look at the war, what led up to it, and the world the Civil War created, with me, Patrick Young. Well, hello everyone. Welcome to the first episode of my new Civil War Reconstruction podcast. The title of this episode, Episode 1, is Pat Claiborne and the Black Confederates. Ominous sounding name. My name is Pat Young. I am Special Professor of Immigration Law at Hofstra University, but I also am a lifelong student of the American Civil War, and over the last decade I've become a student of the Reconstruction era as well. Today's topic Pat Claiborne and the Black Confederates will actually go way beyond Pat Claiborne in the discussion of Black Confederates. Now, I am not going to go and try to convince people that I have the definitive answer as to whether they were Black Confederates or not, uh, whether they were in any large numbers, whether they played any significant role in the Confederate armies during the American Civil War. But I, what I hope I will do is to maybe dispel some myths and also to get you to think about, you know, things that we might think of as evidence. So as I say, I'm not going to go into the individual claims of particular people who are said to be black confederates. I'm not going to go into uh, discussions of appearances in abolitionist newspapers. I'm really not going to be looking at that because I think if we're looking at the term black confederates, we're not talking about a particular individual who might have uh, fought in the war for an hour or two hours uh, on the side of the Confederacy, but really at whether they were black Confederate soldiers. You know, I have heard people say to me that even if somebody wasn't formally enlisted as a soldier, even if they were slaves and they were forced to help the Confederacy, that they were still black Confederates. And I'm just going to say, I knew a person who was forced to assist the Nazis. She was a Jew who was put into a labor camp. And uh, I can tell you that uh, she would never have accepted me referring to her as a Jewish Nazi because some of her enslaved labor was used in order to help the Nazi cause. So I am not going to say that a slave who was forced to accompany a master, a slave owner to the Army of Northern Virginia, the Army of Tennessee, uh, was a black confederate because they were forced to carry out that kind of work. And I know people will say, well, draftees are forced, but draftees are enlisted into the military and slaves were not. So I'm not going to go deeply into this, but I think that you know, when we're talking about something like who is participating in the Confederate Army, we're not just talking about somebody who was enslaved and was cooking food or might have been driving a, a a team of horses or mules uh, in order to transport goods for the uh, Confederate Army. You know, these are not anyone we would consider to be black confederates. You know, and I also realized an argument could be made that there were people who uh, were legally black in the South uh, who fought for the confederacy. And, uh, you know, they were what in my youth we would have referred to as passing. In other words, they were people who were perceived as white, even though they had black ancestry. And we should remember that in many parts of the South, having a black grandparent or great grandparent, even if your other relatives, your other ancestors were white, meant that you were considered to be black or certainly not white. You know, so there certainly could have been people who were, who considered themselves white, but you know, did had they had 23 and me, uh, they would have found out that in fact they were partially non-white. You know, I'm really not going to examine that at all. Um, you know, I had looked at cases, we'll bring up the, uh, the German situation during the 30s, of people who had Uh, joined the Nazi party and were later expelled when it was found that one of their grandparents was Jewish. You know, what we do know is that the laws of the Confederacy barred the enlistment of black people right up until the last weeks, basically, of the existence of the Confederacy. So we're not going to talk about most of that. We will talk about Pat Claiborne, You know, Pat Claiborne is always one of the uh, top-rated subjects. When I put up anything about Pat Claiborne and I have six deep articles on Pat, whenever I put anything up about Pat Claiborne, it gets a huge number of hits. He is one of the most popular figures. I think James Longstreet may be the only person who's more popular among my readers. You know, so Pat is a Big draw. And the other big draw is black Confederates. Now, I don't write about black Confederates because, frankly, uh, I don't think there were black Confederates, at least not more than the occasional person who was passing or who might have picked, who, who might have uh, participated in some fairly obscure way in the war. You know, I don't write about them. And yet, I wrote a review of Kevin Levin's book, Searching for Black Confederates, from the University of North Carolina Press a couple of years ago. And it was the top book review I have ever written. So, you know, generally when I write articles, you know, I get, you know, 1,000, 2,000 people visit. I've had 150, 200,000 people visit some of my articles. But when I write a book review, sorry authors, uh, I usually get maybe a couple of hundred people who read it. And yet with Kevin, when I reviewed his book, put it up, I had well over 10,000 people read it just in the first few months after I posted it. So it is probably the most popular book review that i have ever written for on any platform so i know that black confederates are super super popular i'm also you know i am going to admit it i think you know sometimes when you're in academia you're not supposed to admit that you go on facebook and twitter but i do know that uh it is a topic that is talked about quite a bit don't assume that everybody who brings up Black Confederates as a question is, uh, you know, is a racist, is a horrible person. Um, you know, I remember one of the earliest times that I heard about Black Confederates was when I was uh, beginning my blog on immigrants during the Civil War, and a relative of mine had moved from the northeast of Virginia, and he said, you know, it's really interesting because I never realized this about the Civil War, but there were blacks who were enlisted as Confederate soldiers. You know, now this was not a person who in any way was tied into the lost cause. He hadn't been educated in that. He'd been educated actually in New Jersey. So, you know, why is he bringing this up? Well, he's seeing it on the internet. He's hearing it from his neighbors in Virginia. So I don't think of him as a racist. So if you think, if you've heard about Black Confederates and maybe been a little intrigued by it, I'm not assuming that you're ignorant. I'm not assuming that you are a racist. But I will tell you that the tales of the Black Confederates are greatly exaggerated. Um, you know, I'm going to talk about why, and I'm going to talk about Pat Claiborne and why reading Pat Claiborne? Pat Claiborne was a really bright guy. Reading Pat Claiborne will convince you that there were no black Confederates, at least up until the time Pat Claiborne was killed in 1864. So we do know that uh, several months afterwards, actually several months afterwards, proposals were made for black Confederates. And about a little over a year afterwards, you know, we, we were after he made his proposition at the beginning of 1864 that, in fact, the Confederate government would take up the issue of black Confederates. But up until then, I think Pat Claiborne is probably one of the best proofs that there were no black Confederates at the time that he wrote his famous Emancipation Proclamation, or his Emancipation Proposition, let's say, because he didn't have the power to proclaim. Only Jefferson Davis or the Confederate Congress could have the power to proclaim emancipation patient. So I want to talk a little bit about Pat Claiborne before we begin, but I will say that we're going to talk a little bit about the discussion of Black Confederates, or the lack of discussion of it, and that will be coming up next. Oh, Pat Claiborne. I hear more myths about Pat Claiborne than about Black Confederates. Uh, it's kind of a wild story that you'll typically hear a little bit a little bit set in stone and Paddy's born on St. Patrick's Day over in Ireland he suffers oppression as an Irish Catholic he emigrates to America and he joins the Confederate army apparently has no idea what the confederacy stands for And uh, because he's an immigrant and he is maybe a little dense, he proposes the liberation of the slaves and the enlistment of black Confederate soldiers. Or sometimes I hear that he actually proposes to enlist slaves. So, uh, you know, certainly none of these things are true. Um, So let's talk a little bit about who the real Pat Claiborne was. Um, you know, Pat was probably born on March 16th, the day before St. Patrick's Day, St. Patrick's Day Eve, I guess, if you want to make it a long holiday. Uh, in 1828, there are some stories that say he was uh, born on St. Patrick's Day itself, but it seems pretty clear that the family named him Patrick because of his proximity. Uh, his birthday's proximity to the uh, feast day of St. Patrick, Patrick, of course, being the patron saint of Ireland, as well as my own patron saint. I I love St. Patrick. But, you know, Pat Claiborne was not Irish Catholic. He wasn't from the oppressed minority. Uh, He wasn't even what we sometimes refer to as Scots-Irish or Ulstermen or Ulster Protestants or Orangemen. He did not come from even that group uh he came from you know the the group that was probably the most favored in ireland and that was the the anglo-irish who uh, were largely members of the Anglican Church, the Church of England, which in Ireland was of course called the Church of Ireland. The Church of Ireland is not the Catholic Church, it is the Anglican Church, what we in America would call the Episcopalian Church. Um, And he didn't come from a poor background. His father was a doctor, so a doctor at that time in Ireland was not all that dissimilar from a doctor here. So you're, you know, educated, a man of science, somebody who is hard-working but also makes money you know he he made money uh he had uh, tenant farmers uh you know from the indigenous irish population so uh, he was not growing up in straighted circumstances um you know but pat's life wasn't entirely easy he lost his mom when he was a baby essentially his father married his governess you know, which I, I think it was probably young enough in Pat's life that he didn't think that was weird. Uh, and apparently he had a decent relationship with the governess and with his dad. You know, his dad is... Uh, believed to have supported what was called Catholic emancipation. So in other words, he was not himself Catholic, but he voted for a representative who wanted to end the uh, the dispossession, at least the civil rights dispossession, of Irish Catholics. So somebody who would give Catholics the same uh, rights as the Scots-Irish or of the Anglo-Irish, at least civilly, if not economically. Unfortunately, Pat's dad died, Uh, when he was a teenager and the family's fortune started to decline. Uh, You know, we don't have a ton of information on the internal workings of the family, but it does seem that uh, Pat considered his stepmother to be his mother. He refers to her as mama in a letter to another family member. Uh, Pat is studying to become a uh, pharmacist, an apothecary, he he uh is a teenager he goes to take the exam to get licensed as a uh as a pharmacist and he fails uh and he then disappears from the family you know so i've said the family seemed to be close together well by now the famine is hit in ireland things are starting to slow down. It's not the worst years of the potato famine, the uh, great hunger, the dying off have not really started yet, but he is feeling that the family's fortunes are in decline and that uh, the country's fortunes are in decline and he has studied to become a pharmacist and he has failed the test. So, he disappears and he joins the British Army, okay, and and I've sometimes heard people say he was such a great general as a confederate because he had learned so much in the British Army. He was not an officer in the British Army. He did not rise in the ranks. There's no indication he had any particular distinction, and he did not fight in a war. He was in a regiment that spent its time in Ireland and, uh, you know, People from his class generally did not enlist in the army. They might try to become officers, but they didn't want to become enlisted men. The discipline could be brutal. The task could be mind-numbing. And uh, particularly in Ireland, which really, you know, the the British were occupying Ireland, right? I think they were in the 7th, 100th year of the occupation at this point the british are occupying ireland this is not a pleasant thing for the irish and uh, you know if you were a man of conscience uh, you probably did not feel very good about your work with the british army in ireland particularly as the uh, famine intensified you know we begin to see revolutionary activity uh, organizing in ireland it's going to culminate in the vastly unsuccessful uh 1848 uh revolution there um the young irelander movement which is the one that adopts the irish tricolor flag the green white and orange flag that we know today uh you know they're going to rise up under thomas francis marr who's going to become a brigadier general in the union army and then uh you know, in the British army at the time is is Patrick Claiborne. We really don't have too much on what his views were of the revolt, but he did see uh, the poverty that the Irish were sinking into. Um, he also saw that the, uh, you know, that the revolution was snuffed out, and he had to know that the men who led it were sentenced to death. Now, for the most part, they were not executed. They were sent to Australia, but you know, he knew that the price of revolution was death if you did not succeed. In 1849, which the famine was now, had gone through three years already, uh, Pat Claiborne's stepmother proposed that the family move to America. Pat responded that, quote, the prospects of Ireland are anything but good and experience goes very far to prove that they will not be better. Uh, With the Claiborne family home likely to be gobbled up by creditors, Pat wrote to his sister, if mama has made her mind up to go, the best plan would be to go as soon as possible. So in other words, the family still had some resources. They were not poverty-stricken, but their family fortunes were in decline. Uh, He then bought his way out of the army, and uh, two weeks after he left the army, he was on his way to America. Uh, he did not have the coffin ship experience. Uh, I've actually visited graves of people who are on the coffin ships. These were ships that were so poorly made that they either sank or the people on them starved or died from disease. He, he was not in that situation. He was able to afford food and a cabin uh, to sleep in, but he did not like the rest of his family, wind up in the north. Uh, So in other words, he left to go to America to be with his family, but he didn't wind up with his family who who all moved north. Uh, He arrived in New Orleans Christmas Day, 1849. Um, He was supposed to be going to Ohio, but uh, he, uh, and, and he actually did find work in a Cincinnati drugstore, but while he was there he was offered a job by two doctors uh, to run a an, uh, pharmacy and apothecary in Helena, Arkansas. So five months after he came to America, he was heading south. A year later, he had he had bought out the store. Um, That he had been invited to run. He seemed to have fit himself well into society in Arkansas. And he decided after a little while that he didn't want to be a pharmacist anymore. Um, He wanted to be a lawyer. And he trained himself. At that time, you didn't have to go to law school. He trained himself to become a lawyer. And he was apparently uh, able to achieve some prominence there. And, you know, to just deal with the question of whether he knew. What the uh, Confederate cause was about, he became good friends with a man named Thomas Hindman. Thomas Hindman was a fire eating Democratic politician who favored secession. And I, I think it would be impossible going through the 1850s for Pat Claiborne not to understand, you know, the secession crisis and the lurch towards war and the formation of the Confederacy, because he actually was friends with someone who had helped to precipitate that. Now, we don't know that much about how he felt about uh, the Civil War, its outbreak, but he enlisted, he, he joined the army early. He, um, was part of his Helena community. He wanted to make sure that he had a part in this. So he wasn't somebody who just sort of stumbled on the scene uh, right after getting off the boat. I keep hearing these nonsensical stories that all the Irish who served in the Civil War were just off the boat. And I'm like, eh, you know, the vast majority were not, okay, whether they were in New Orleans or in a place like Helena, where. These were small Irish communities, uh, small Irish community in Helena, certainly in New Orleans, there was a large one. But, uh, you know, if they were in New York, Boston, etc., these were almost always people who had been in the United States for, you know, at least several years and often a decade or more like Pat was. So he he was not a newcomer, he was not a greenhorn, and he he actually had much more access to to, uh, you know, a leader of the secession movement in Arkansas. So he knew what the war was about. So he did not propose his uh, emancipation plan because he had no clue that the Confederacy somehow involved slavery. Okay, so that's Pat. Pat goes on to uh, become a general. He's. Uh, I'm not going to go through his military career. His military career. I'm sure most of the people listening to this know about his military career. He is in many, many of the major battles uh, that are fought uh, west of the Appalachian Mountains, and you know he is almost universally viewed as one of the better commanders below the level of a corps commander. He's somebody who's considered extremely competent militarily. It's interesting because I was wondered, well, did he retain any Irish character? And it's interesting when you read accounts of people who know him or who meet him, and they often refer to him as the Irishman. And in fact, people in Helena said that whenever um, Irish work crews would come through town, because there wasn't a big Irish community, there Uh, whenever Irish work crews would come through for the railroads or canal builders or road builders that uh, Pat would always want to spend a little bit of time with them even though they would probably not be from his religious background they might be either uh, Irish Catholics or Scots Irish or they might be you know folks who were or they would have been very poor people uh, compared to him I mean he had worked himself up into the professional class. He was not a slave owner. He had written to his brother that he didn't want to own slaves. But we don't know that he was an abolitionist before the war. I've sometimes heard it said that because he didn't want to own slaves, he was an abolitionist. Maybe he was. His letter to his brother does not indicate that. It just indicates that he didn't want to own a slave. And that could have been because he was in a profession. He didn't necessarily see a need to have a slave working for an attorney. You know, he wasn't going to train somebody who was a slave to be a paralegal for instance um and maybe he made his own coffee in the morning and cooked his own food that's pat claiborne and uh you know pat in 1863 begins to see that the south is losing the war so you know we always have to say when did jeff davis realize the war was over Eh, probably april of 1865 right A man in good conscience who sees the war is ending would not have uh, continued to throw away the lives of the young men of the Confederacy after he had made that conclusion. So if we assume that Davis wasn't an absolute monster, we have to assume that he didn't recognize that the war was lost, but certainly Pat Claiborne believed that the war was lost. And we're going to come back in just a moment with the rest of this story. We'll be back in just a moment with the rest of the show. So we're back. Uh, you know, I think when we take a look at Patrick Claiborne's so-called proposal to arm the slaves, you know, you should understand it embodied a much broader critique of the Southern war effort Uh, and it went well beyond arming the slaves. Patrick Claiborne talked about emancipation being necessary if blacks were going to be incorporated into the Southern Army. I'm not going to try to go into every aspect of the proposal. I've written about it. I may do a podcast next year about it, but I do want to just highlight, Pat was a lawyer, And, uh, you know, I've I've read, I'm an attorney as well, I teach law at Hofstra Law School, and I have to say that I have read a lot of legal papers from the mid-1800s, and, you know, while Abraham Lincoln is great, his papers are good. A lot of the legal papers that I read are kind of crappy, you know, lawyers didn't necessarily go to law school. Most of them just did an apprenticeship. They read the law in a lawyer's office and, you know, if they didn't have a great person they were studying under, then maybe they weren't particularly well trained. Uh, When you read Patrick's uh, emancipation proposal, his arming the slaves proposal, you realize that he is very lawyerly. Uh, As a professor, I would like to say, make a sound like a lawyer to my students, and Pat does. He definitely writes as a lawyer. Uh, His proposal is lawyerly. He musters all of the evidence for arming blacks, and he makes an impressive argument. Now, this was submitted on January 2nd, 1864, and Patrick Claiborne is clearly the author, but it's also signed by a number of other Confederate officers that he was with in the Army of Tennessee. And I'll just sketch briefly what his argument is. It is, we're losing the war. The Confederates are losing. Slavery is on the way out. So we really should not be talking about how do we save slavery. We should recognize that no matter what, win or lose, slavery is pretty much a dead uh, issue in the Confederacy. Uh, we desperately need new soldiers. In fact, he says every private in the army knows that we're running out of soldiers, that every year we get a little bit weaker, and every year the northern armies stay either the same or they become more powerful. Uh, He says that slavery has already alienated the confederacy from potential foreign allies. Slavery stirs up fanatical devotion to the union cause in the north, so people are not just fighting to keep the country together, they're also fighting to end slavery. He says immigrants don't want to come to the Confederacy or join the Confederate Army because they don't want to f- defend slavery. Um, you know, he he feels that the, uh, the Union armies uh, are able to recruit immigrants and the Southern armies are not able to recruit immigrants because one is fighting for abolition and the other one is fighting for slavery. Um, he also says that Uh, Blacks, you know, and here he really means people who are enslaved, uh, have become instant allies of Union forces whenever they arrive in the neighborhood. So we know from many reports from Union officers that blacks would often give information on Confederate forces. They'd talk about when they were prominent uh, politicians or uh, soldiers hiding in their region um, and they would even reveal where supplies might have been hidden by uh, plantation owners so you know they were the instant allies and uh, as long as there was slavery in the south uh, about a third of the population was going to ally itself with the invading Union armies according to Claiburne Uh, He also pointed out that Lincoln was already recruiting blacks into the Union Army and that he would likely soon have 100,000 blacks in uniform. And as we know, it eventually grew to about 180,000 blacks in uniform. Uh, Without uh, slavery, there would be little incentive for blacks to join the Union Army. He also said that blacks have fought very well in the past. You know, there was a perception in the South. There's two interesting perceptions. One is blacks won't fight, and the other is once black people take up the gun, they're never going to put it down until they kill their masters. So he says, well, you know, blacks have actually fought very well in the past. And he pointed to Haiti where he said that they had defeated the French, you know, largely their masters, but also French soldiers sent to uh, suppress revolts during the Napoleonic period. And he noted that in Jamaica, the Maroons, these were, you know, essentially colonies of runaways, uh, had fought a successful guerrilla war in the hill country in the mountains uh, for many years. So in other words, he is seeing them as good soldiers. And he says that, you know, his experience has been that the blacks who've been recruited by the north, by the federal armies, uh, have fought you know, about as well or performed, because most of them had not yet fought, but had performed about as well as other newly re- new recruits. In other words, very few blacks had been in the army for more than six or seven months at this point, but that they had fought as well and had performed as well as other new recruits, and maybe they would become good veteran soldiers. The thing is, you know, why are we talking about this in terms of black confederates? It's because in all of this argument, and it's, it's very comprehensive, I, I really urge people, to take a look at the proposal rather than read articles about the proposal. I mean, I've written a couple of good articles on it, but you know, I think if you read the proposal, it's very accessible, it's very well written, it's not in technical language, and it's written in an intelligent and coherent manner. Uh, take a look at it. You would think that he's using almost every example of why the Confederacy should adopt first emancipation and second incorporation of blacks into the army. And the one example that he never uses is that there's already black Confederacy you know, you would think that Claiborne, who's a division commander, had been actually adhering to the Confederate cause before there actually even was a Confederate army. You know, he was he was early on into the Arkansas forces, and he was quickly promoted up the ladder in Arkansas and then within the Army of Tennessee. You would think that he would have known if there were already black Confederates, and he would have pointed to some examples of them fighting on behalf of the Confederacy. And yet he never does. And I can say, you know, when you see that kind of an absence in a what's essentially a legal brief, uh, you realize that he did not believe that there were any black Confederates. And I, I think he would have been surprised if I said to him, why didn't you at least discuss this? He would say, because there aren't any. Uh, Pat Claiborne, smart guy. Comes from outside of Southern society, but frankly, he had been part of Southern society during the decade before the war. He was not deluded about what the cause was about because uh, Pat Claiborne was very close to uh, General Hindman, who had been a prominent secessionist and was a friend of his. So I don't think that he didn't know what was going on. but. He, he also believed that the Confederacy could only survive if it got rid of slavery and incorporated blacks into civil society and also into the army. And yet, when he makes his argument, he never once mentions the existence of black Confederates, of blacks fighting for the Confederacy. So, if you hear someone talking about Nathan Bedford Forrest, black cavalrymen, you might want to ask them why Pat Claiborne didn't mention them. Pat fought with forest the same army. You would have thought he would have heard of them. Thanks for listening to the first episode of this podcast, and we'll talk to you again in a month. Take care now. Thanks for listening to Civil War Reconstruction with Pat Young.